Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. Shore Davidi is a rainbow glitter bomb of a human who exudes thoughtfulness and creativity. Within the clutches of capitalism, Shore makes her living as a coach, consultant, and podcast host, helping people redefine health and wellness in the ways that feel most nourishing for them. Shore currently feels particularly passionate about queer TikTok, having a bookshelf full of physical books she hasn't read yet, while continuously turning to audiobooks, sending snail mail, expanding her collection of fancy sprinkles, and trying her best to human, even when it hurts. Shore, tell me where you were born and how you identify with that place. So I was born in West Allis, Wisconsin, and I don't identify with that place really at all because, uh, one, that's just where the hospital was located. So the areas of Wisconsin that I do resonate are not that city in particular. I don't think I've spent any time in that city other than apparently being born there. Um, My ties to Wisconsin are that my mom is from Wisconsin. Her whole side of the family lives there. And I actually went to college there in Madison. But I grew up most of my life in Texas, spent pretty much all of my formative years in Texas from second grade until I graduated high school. So I really claim Texas is my home much more than Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is just like a familial place to me. Do you ever go back there? I did a lot more frequently before I moved to Austin because I was in Chicago for law school. So it was pretty easy to go up back up to Wisconsin. I would go visit college friends. I would go visit my uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles who live there. And now just as time has gone on, I don't get up there nearly as often unless there's like some big family event that we're all going to. Mm. And do you identify with being a Texan? Like, would you call yourself a Texan? Yeah, I definitely identify with being a Texan more than I identify with being a Wisconsinite. Like, Texas just is home to me. Like, I've always felt like it was home when I went to college and then law school. I knew that I wanted to come back to Texas and settle in Texas. So that's always been kind of a driving force for me. And how do you feel about living in Austin? What's your experience been like here? I love Austin. I truly do. We we have our problems, as all cities do. Um, I have a lot of concerns about uh, the fact that the city thinks it's a lot more liberal than it really is. That being said, I think as far as places to live, it's the perfect place for me because of everything that Austin has to offer. I love the size. I love all of the different outdoor things that you can do here. Like just the fact that there's so many parks and opportunities to be on water that are smack in the middle of the city, like, or you can drive any direction outside of the city and find even more options for things to do outside. The food here is really great. I've generally found people to be friendly and to just have enjoyable nightlife. So I think for me as an individual and what I'm looking for in a city at this time in my life, Austin is pretty amazing. Plus, I really don't do well with cold weather. Like the eight years that I lived in the Midwest were brutal. And the 300 days of sunshine were very much a driving factor for moving down here. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I've I've lived in 
places that were pretty uh, brutally cold. Cleveland, Germany, like just, you know, imagine the worst. Cleveland really probably more than anywhere. And yeah, it doesn't, it does not resonate. I don't think it's necessarily like based on how long you've lived a place. I think it, it's just like your internal clock, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it's intrinsic. I feel you. <laughs> yeah. There's um, that inner piece of you that just kind of knows where it likes to be. Like I, I, it's weird. Like when I lived in the Midwest, I really did feel like a longing for Texas and just there's something about the space here and the sky here I don't know it's different and people are like what do you mean the sky is the same everywhere and I'm like it's not though like it really feels different here yeah it's I I also feel like the fact that there's water in the center of Austin that we can actually interact with has a lot to do with the energy in this city Mm -hmm. I don't know I feel like just the fact that there's so much activity around the trail and on like Ladybird Lake, you know, I feel like things like stem out from there. Um, which yeah. is kind of cool. Um, okay. So segueing into identity, I, I feel like it's notable that you speak out about your identity and the things that resonate with who you are as a human. I'm curious how you've not just developed your identities, but how you've maintained them and strengthened them. Um, So just to kind of list what's come to the forefront online, since this is our first real conversation, um, you identify as queer, uh, biracial, um, neurodiverse, and health and wellness educator and coach. um, All at the same time, it seems like I feel like you, you really speak on each part of you um, across the board. And so I'm curious how you maintain that. And, uh, I don't know, is there any overlap or are they compartmentalized? Yeah. Maintain is an interesting word choice because when I really think about it, like to maintain these identities, the key to it is really just to continue to turn inward and listen to what my internal self is telling me feels right and feels like what I identify as. Where it gets difficult to maintain is the fact that we live in a world and in a society that tells us, you know, identities that we have are wrong or tries to tell us that you do need to fit yourself into different boxes. And that's where I feel like everything can go really haywire. So for me, the ability to maintain and strengthen these identities has again really just come from listening to myself when those identities are becoming apparent. So as a great example, um, so I'm neurodiverse, I have ADHD. And despite the fact that my dad has ADHD and two of my siblings have ADHD, I went undiagnosed until my late 20s. And Now I can look back and see all these different times where it was apparent and where I was really struggling with common ADHD symptoms, but it went missed by other people around me. And there are a lot of reasons for that having to do with, you know, how it shows up in girls and women versus uh, boys and men having to do with, uh, you know, stereotypes about doing well in school and ADHD. But Nobody noticed this except for me. And there were multiple times where I was like, something is wrong. Like, I'm really struggling. In law school, there were times I was really struggling. People just chalked it up to anxiety. And it was me who figured out, I think that I have ADHD. It wasn't someone else who told me. You know, I self-diagnosed before I got it confirmed later with a therapist and a psychiatrist. And even my parents were like, eh, we don't know if you have that because it doesn't seem like you have that compared to your siblings. Uh, but in reality, I had just developed a lot of great coping mechanisms over the course of my life to mask ADHD, which again is extremely common for girls and women who have it. But I knew that there was something there. I knew that I was struggling with things that other people weren't struggling with. And I was searching for the answer 
to why. And that led me to figuring out, oh, my brain does not work the way that other people's brains work. And, you know, so much of identity is trying to filter out all of the messaging and the other voices that we hear that are not our own, and really trying to amplify and strengthen the voice that's inside that is telling us something different. Because it's the same thing with realizing that I was queer, didn't realize I was queer until my late 20s. Um, because of all the societal messaging about heteronormativity and, you know, men and women are supposed to be together and different aspects that now I'm really unpacking and being like, wow, there's so much here that I had just pushed down and ignored for all of my life and had not allowed it to bloom and to blossom. That now that it's coming out, you know, I, I feel the most me. And I think that for me is the key is, you know, how am I feeling with myself? Am I able to feel like I am authentically me? If not, why? What is happening? Is it something wrong with me? Or is it because somebody outside of me is telling me that I should do something or that some part of me is wrong or trying to fit me into a box that I don't belong in? Mm -hmm. How do you block out the noise? There's a lot of it, you know? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's really difficult. Um, I think for me, it has just been, again, just getting to know myself better and also really working on not needing everybody to like me and not needing everybody to respect my choices and necessarily accept who I am. I think all the times in my life where I was trying to fit in and I was trying to be what other people expected me to be, that those were times in my life where I was not authentic, where I felt very confused, and I was confused by the relationships that I was in. But when I have not gone down that path, and instead I have said, you know, this is who I am, and I'm just going to be me, and let's see what happens, that is where I've had the most impact in life, both in my work, in relationships, like when you build relationships from the ground up with showing up as you are and saying, I hope that you accept me, it's terrifying because you're putting your whole self out there and you're just hoping that people will like that and accept it. And it's really painful when they don't. But if you show up to an initial relationship pretending to be something that you're not or hiding parts of yourself, that's never going to be a great relationship. That's never going to be a really positive thing in your life because you didn't come to it being who you are. Yeah, that's such a good point. I I don't know. I guess I've always thought there are certain things I can tell certain people like you kind of think of the circles you know like who's privy to the information mm-hmm. but I guess at the end of the day if if someone doesn't know all of you or all of the aspects that are important to you then that relationship has a ceiling you know um so that's that's an interesting way of putting it I haven't really thought about it like that how did you come out as queer how did you how did you navigate that with relationships. Yeah. So again, because I came out as queer in my late 20s, it's a little bit different experience than I think what people imagine in their heads, you know, maybe like a high schooler or middle schooler coming out to their parents. Um, I came out to my parents last before (laughs) I came out publicly uh, because I was very concerned about how they would react to it. So you know, I coming out to myself first was the key component here. And thankfully, I had uh, two friends, very close friends who also identify as queer. And it was really in knowing them and having conversations with them that I began to understand my own identity in that way, because I had had some misconceptions about queerness and bisexuality. I really hadn't known anybody up to that point who identified as bisexual. I'd had uh, gay friends, but definitely not anyone who was bisexual. So because I didn't have that representation, it was a piece of me that I just had not explored. And then having met 
other people who were living that out loud and being able to talk with them, I realized, oh, you know, I think this is how I identify. I think this is would describe, you know, my own sexual orientation. And I had a ton of imposter syndrome about it as many bisexual and pansexual people experience because you feel like, ooh, am I trying to take up space somewhere where I shouldn't? Like, am I just trying to be special in some way by you know, claiming a queer identity? And not to say that that doesn't happen, I'm sure that occasionally happens with people, but that's such a common experience for bi and pan people to be like, oh, I don't belong, I'm not queer enough, I don't really fit here. And I was so glad to have supportive friends who were like, you do fit. We do accept you. They had already been through all of this themselves years before. And so they knew how to kind of hold me through that process uh, and to show that acceptance. And so, you know, coming out to myself was like, okay, this is, this is who I am. This is my identity. Wow. This is amazing. Then coming out to my partner, uh, went very well as well. He was very supportive of that identity. Close friends were all very supportive. Then my parents really put that off to the last minute. (laughs) And (laughs) the only reason, honestly, that I decided to come out to them is because I do have an online, you know, platform. I'm very transparent online. And I felt like this wasn't something that I wanted to hide. I felt like, you know, one of the reasons it took me so long to even realize that I was bisexual is because I didn't have representation. And I wanted to be able to be a part of providing that representation for other people who might be in a similar situation to me where they're questioning this, you know, later after high school, after college. So I was like, all right, well, I have to tell my parents. And, you know, it it went okay, I guess, is the best way that I will describe that. My mom responded how I expected her to, which was, why does it matter? Because you're married. And my dad was uh, much more supportive than that and was understanding of, yes, why it matters and why it's important to me. Um, and beyond that, we haven't really talked much about it. Um, but I did come out publicly after that on you know my Instagram page and my Facebook and the vast majority of people were very supportive in that. Um, There's certainly some biphobia in extended family and other people online that I have had to deal with, but at least the people who are really closest to me have been extremely supportive of that and have cheered me on as I've, you know, continued to develop my queer identity. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I, I love what you said about you know, in part you're transparent because you know that it'll reach people who might need that support or even just who might need a space to almost, you know, consume that feels authentic and that feels like something that they might be grappling with. You know, I definitely, the parts of myself that I keep private when I feel a calling, it's because I want to provide information that I maybe sought, you know, when I was younger. Um, so yeah, I, I, that really resonates with me. Okay. So this is such a great transition. Um, just kind of talking about how you were concerned about taking up space. That's, that just speaks to your sensitivity and awareness. Um, and I'm very appreciative of that. Claiming space is, um, a big part of what I do. And, I noticed that you, you spoke about taking up space as a person of color. And for me, especially in this civil rights moment um, and movement, I have experienced, heard, and seen a lot of white passing individuals claim space in the BIPOC realm for various purposes that feel self-serving. For example, Mm -hmm. when lists were coming out of, you know, here's how you can support people of color. And then white passing people were like, I belong on that list you know, well, society doesn't see you as a person of color, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so yeah, that's kind of a tricky topic. Um, and as a melanated person who's been discriminated against because of literally the color of my skin, um, you know, it gets to me, but you have said that as a white passing person who is also mixed, um, you're careful to take up that space. And so I'm curious, how you would speak to another person about that who is of a similar demographic 
what would you say to them? And even if you just want to expand on sort of this topic in general, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so this is a great question. And I actually just recently did an interview for my podcast with the two women who are the co-founders of Mixed in America, which is an organization specifically about the mixed experience. And one of the things that we delved into pretty deeply in our podcast episode was colorism. And the idea that, you know, at least in the US in particular, depending on the shade of your skin determines how people treat you, even within different people who identify as people of color. So, you know, the lighter that your skin is uh, as a black person, as a Middle Eastern person, the better you tend to be treated, the more opportunities you tend to get. And then the darker your skin gets, the more that you are discriminated against. And this is a topic that tends to get people really riled up. But one of the things that I talked about in that episode was how this is something that I've experienced even within my own family, because we are mixed. And so I have three siblings and all of us are different shades. We have different names and different experiences. And we each have different experiences with whether we've, you know, had microaggressions towards us, whether we've had racism, racism that we've experienced. And, you know, the lighter the skin, the less likely that that is something that we've had. And so when I think about this, I think we have to be very careful about how we take up space and what that looks like and when we do it, particularly if you are a white passing person of color. And white passing, I also want to say, is on a spectrum because in some situations you may be white passing and in other situations you may not be white passing. You know, for me, like on paper, I'm not white passing. In person, most of the time I'm white passing, but kind of depends on context and who I'm in the room with as well. And those are things that I need to keep in mind when I'm navigating, is this my place to speak? Because I see my role, a really great role that I can have as a mixed person where I have had experiences that other people of color had, and I've also had experiences that white individuals have had, is being able to bridge the gap between people in helping with education, getting people connected with where they need to go. But does my voice need to be the loudest in the room when we're talking about BIPOC issues? Absolutely not. Unless maybe I'm in a room with all white people who have never um, had any of those experiences. And even then, what I'm really wanting to do is amplify the voices of people who are having these experiences of racism and oppression that I have not had myself. So I think when I'm talking to other people who are in this same boat, yes, your identity is valid. It's important. Again, white passing, it's on a spectrum. It isn't to say that you haven't experienced your own discrimination. Most of us have, but we have to understand that it is not to the level of other people, to like a melanated person such as yourself or people who are darker than you. Your experiences are completely different than ours. And those are the people that we need to be talking to and listening to, especially in activist spaces. In all of my work, what's really important to me is to turn my attention to the most marginalized and ask what they need. Really listen to them. Who can I direct to those spaces? Whose voice can I amplify to make sure that they're getting a platform that they might not otherwise be able to get because they are marginalized? Like That's what I'm always thinking about uh, because being marginalized is on this spectrum. And so I think the problem is that people come into this thinking of it as black and white, which I guess is a pun as well. <laughs> um, but you, know, you come into the space thinking like either you are BIPOC and thus everyone's experience is the same and everyone should be treated the same or you're white. And that's really not the case. Like the BIPOC experience is vast and vastly different depending on, again, what, what country you're from, what uh, your family looks like, where you grew up, like everyone's experiences are so different. And so I think that it is just so important to listen and to understand that and to really, again, try not to take up space on other people. Like, for instance, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the civil rights movement that is happening right now in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you know, that's not a space for me 
as a Middle Eastern mixed person to be like, hey, put me on a list of, you know, BIPOC people that you should follow. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. One, I'm not black. And two, like, I am not the voice that needs to be listened to right now because my experience as a mixed Middle Eastern person is so different from black people's experience and the history is so different. So while we do have things in common, we're also all very different. And I think that people also need to say what they mean. So a lot of times people will say POC um, when what they really mean is black, or they'll say BIPOC when what they really mean is black. And we need to be careful with our language because language matters. Yes. So true. Yeah. I think, you know, in part you're speaking to relativity, which I think is like you know, one of the key elements of life and also just looking at it as a spectrum. I also think, you know, I don't know. I I love everything you said and it made me think that, you know, in a way you're an advocate and an educator. And if you're well-read, if you're aware, if you've quote done the work, then you have the ability to go speak to people who haven't and to enlighten them. And as black people, we're tired, you know? And, and so I don't know, oftentimes when I, when I think of people being a bridge, it's not that, that we want necessarily people to be a bridge to us. We want other people to bridge to knowledge and awareness. We each have a role to play when it comes to social justice and when it comes to activism. And I think if we can take the time to examine where do I fall here? Where can I be most useful in helping? Like there's so much power in that, like you said, and and teaming up together to be able to do that and coming back to this listening and where can I be most useful instead of just kind of trampling over other people or trying to be the loudest in the room. Yes. Yes. Also true. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, there's been a lot of criticism and I do think it's really tricky on social media. Like, where is the line? You know, um, I think the fact is it's just blurry. <laughs> and so, you know, leading with grace and forgiveness is is really important. <laughs> um, yeah, this is an area where everyone fucks up. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's really no getting around that. I've just accepted that sometimes you're going to fuck up or you're going to say something that two months from now you're going to be like, wow, I would not say that now. Yeah. And that is the journey of caring about other people and of social justice, where it's like if you're continuously learning and growing, of course, you're going to look back and be like, oh, I really messed that up before, but if we can look at it from the growth perspective of like, wow, look how far I've come, then these mistakes don't have to be the end of the world. Because I do think the biggest thing that I've seen um, with white people in particular, as well as um, some uh, white passing or, you know, non-black people of color is when a mistake is made and getting called out is just the complete shutdown, the defensiveness, um, and just being up in their feelings. And that is not how we can move forward. And it's taken me time, but I have really learned, you know, what does an apology look like? What does it mean to um, address your harms and deal with your harms? And if we could all develop those skills, we would be so much better off instead of just like getting up in our feelings and giving up. Right. Yeah. And I mean, to an extent, we need the mistakes, you know, we need to know how to act and how not to act. And, and then also in that same vein, there are people who are speaking out and saying things that might be correct. And yet they're still going to get backlash, you know, so it kind of goes back to what you said in the beginning about being careful about what you consume and who you listen to. Um, because there's all, they're always going to be naysayers. So when it comes to sharing images of yourself on Instagram, um, we kind of just talked about language and, you know, we were a little more out in the sky and if we bring it to sort of the visual aspect of being online, um, you know, you said you're, you're, I think you said objectively beautiful. I mean, you are beautiful. You said you're, you're able-bodied, you know, you, pre- I say I have pretty privilege is yeah. what is the term usually is. Okay. I love that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's great that you call those things out, um, especially while many don't, um, but you know, typically online, we know that like your face performs better, you know, like right. showing a peek behind the curtain, you know, the person, not the, the thing, not the business is what people want to see. 
and you kind of say no, like you don't get to see that. And here's why, you know, you're, you're resisting the mm-hmm. system essentially. And so how do you practice that discipline? How do you stick to it knowing that all of those other things exist and that this might not necessarily be the fastest way to get ahead or to grow? Yeah, it's something that I've been working on now for several years since I started my business online almost four years ago now. And at first, you know, you can, a lot of the pictures are gone now, but you can scroll back and you can see that my feed used to have a lot more images of me. And then over time, it's gotten less and less and less. And, you know, this lesson has come to me from fat activists. It's not something that I just came up with. So I just want to give credit where credit is due. Um, which is that I've learned from them that to showcase my body and even my face in my feed where that's the main thing that you're seeing there really conflicts with the work that I am trying to do as someone who uh, is doing weight-inclusive work, who believes in body liberation and fat liberation and that all bodies deserve respect and care. Because unfortunately, like you said, those visuals get people looking at them and they sell, right? A lot of people online using themselves to sell products because there's this unspoken idea in our society, especially on social media, that whatever this person is selling, that you will be more like them if you get that, right? When you when you sell a fitness program and the way that you advertise it is you're showing off like your six-pack abs and you're holding your green smoothie, What people are internalizing, and maybe not consciously, is that by doing this program, they will be closer to looking like you. And that just doesn't fit with the values that I have for my work, because that's not, I mean, that is not accurate. It's not true. Um, You could do all the exact same things that I do in my life, and you wouldn't look like me, and you wouldn't have the same body as me because of genetics and hormones and a million other factors. But that's what we think in our brains because diet culture runs so deep within us. And so in my divestment from diet culture and not wanting to be a part of that problem, I have found that it's important for me to lead with my work, which is something that uh, Kelly Deals, who's a feminist marketing educator, says a lot, and put my work out first and see what happens with that. And it was definitely scary because It was like starting from scratch in a way online when people are used to these very image-driven posts. And instead I was saying, nope, you know, you're getting words, maybe you're getting pictures of something else. And then my captions are honestly like mini blog posts most of the time where I'm putting a lot of work into them. But you know what? Over time, that has given me the audience that I actually want. And it has given me an audience of people who are much more likely to be potential clients because they're not following me because of what I look like. They're following me because my work is front and center and my work resonates with them. And maybe my work is something that they need that is helping them in their lives. So for me, it's really allowed me to see myself as an educator instead of an object. And honestly, I feel like so often on social media, like we can feel like props and like we are there to entertain and look pretty for other people. I mean, look, I love a professional photo shoot as much as the next person. I literally have one scheduled with you at the end of this month and I'm very excited about it. Me too. Uh, you know, we need professional photos for things. We need them for our website. Sometimes I need them for programs. I need them sometimes on social media, but in my line of work, it doesn't make sense for my whole feed or my whole persona to be around what I look like because I really want my work to speak for itself. And yes, I want people to get to know me to see what I look like. But when it comes to that work, that's why I have decided to do that. And I have carved out other spaces online for me where I don't necessarily have that boundary. I have a personal Instagram account where I just post whatever I want. I have a TikTok where I just post whatever I want. So I have other ways of expressing that and bringing my face and my body and fashion and all these things that I like in other areas, just not in my main workspace. The intent behind what you do is is really important and i think sort of if i'm looking at this thematically like we keep going back to like you said sort of this this space of introspection and just a high level of awareness not just of yourself but of the space around you um 
So again, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being an aware person. <laughs> it's taken a long time to develop, but it can be done. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's special. Not, I mean, I feel like that word is not good enough, but, um, but it is special and rare. So, well, I'll say too, that sometimes it can cause difficulty because I am extremely aware and also like, I'm very thoughtful. Like people ask me, what's my superpower? I always say thoughtfulness. Like I am like the best damn gift giver you will ever meet. <laughs> but because I have this sort of hyper awareness of the world around me, my place in it and in different communities, uh, sometimes it leads to self-doubt where I run through so many filters that I can get lost where, you know, if I'm posting or whatever it may be, where I'm like, oh, have I considered every angle here, you know, have I really thought about how this is going to be read by other people? And some of that is my perfectionist nature as well, that I'm really trying to kind of recover from the perfectionist personality that I've had for a long time. And again, the way I, I work with that is trying to come back to myself and saying, you know, what is, what is the intention here? What are your values? Are you leading with those? And if you make a mistake, it's okay, because you can't know what you don't know. And you can't let that, you know, keep you stuck in fear and not doing things. Like we still have to speak out. Like you said, making mistakes is a good thing. Making mistakes is how we learn. And so really embracing that has allowed me to be more free in what I'm saying while also being aware. So going back to intuitive eating, can you explain what it is and how you personally practice it? Sure. So intuitive eating is a way of eating that was developed by uh, two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, and they wrote a book about it in 1995 originally, and it's now in its fourth edition, which actually just came out this summer, and the fourth edition is excellent, and it's really grown and evolved a lot over the course of the time since it's existed. The best way I can explain it is that it's a way of eating that is based in self-care instead of in self-control. So instead of restricting yourself or cutting out entire food groups, instead of counting your calories, counting macros, the goal with intuitive eating is to, again, one of my favorite themes, turn inward, listen to your own body, figure out your own hunger and fullness signals, figure out what foods are satisfying and enjoyable for you, and then build the way you eat around that. And in order to do that, of course, requires as much unlearning as it does learning because we are all wrapped up in this culture of dieting and wellness. And when I say diet culture, what I'm talking about is a culture that teaches us that white, thin, able-bodied, young people are the ideal and the epitome of beauty and health and that we should all be spending our time and money and energy trying to conform to looking like that. That's what diet culture is based around. That's what every diet, every quote unquote healthy lifestyle, uh, most uh, fitness programs, all of them are based in this idea of diet culture, that we are not good enough, we're not worthy, we're not whole, happy people until we are thin, and that our worth is based on our body size and our health. And that's a whole crock of bullshit. And intuitive eating is sort of the answer to, okay, so if we're not going to participate in that, how do we know what to eat and how do we feed ourselves? And it's based on 10 principles that are not rules. They're not like a black and white, yes, do this. They're just guidelines for helping people understand how do you get back in touch with those hunger and fullness cues? How do you figure out what feels satisfying and how can you have you know, a healthy relationship with your body and with exercise outside of diet culture? Because those aren't things that come naturally when you've grown up in a world that has taught you something completely different for decades for most of us that now we're trying to unlearn and come back to ourselves. Hmm. Can you provide like, I don't know, I don't know what word to use. I'll do my best. <laughs> Can you provide like <laughs> pillars or activities or kind of come back to's that people could use to practice intuitive eating? I know it's a whole process and you are a coach, of, you know, for it, but it, could you like wrap up like a few sort of like, I don't know, pointers? Sure. Yeah. 
Um, I can give you some of my, like if someone wants to just explore intuitive eating on their own, where might they start with that? So a few different places. Uh, first thing I would say is, is important is to bring mindfulness back to the eating experience. So many of us do not have any sense of mindfulness when we're eating. Maybe we're rushing in the car to eat our food, running from place to place. Uh, maybe we're just like sort of mindlessly munching on something while we are watching TV or uh, you know playing on our phone. And so bringing a little bit more reverence back to the eating experience and actually just being in touch with your body while you are eating, that alone can make just a vast difference for people. Now, if you have no experience whatsoever with mindfulness or meditation, you will probably find that extremely challenging at first. So there are different levels to this. You know, it can be as simple as just checking in with yourself, maybe at the beginning of a meal, in the middle, and at the end at first, instead of trying to stay mindful through the whole thing. And really just asking yourself, like, how am I feeling right now? You know, am I hungry? How hungry am I? Am I full? You know, when you're eating the food, asking yourself, hmm, do I like this? Like, does it taste good? Does it taste like what I thought it would? And then as you're going through the meal, thinking about like, am I full? Like, do I still want this food? You know, what's going on here? So just bringing again that awareness piece and trying to reconnect with the experience of eating and with food is one of the biggest things that people can do. And just start to, again, get in touch with feelings of hunger and fullness. Like so many of us, because of living in diet culture and doing a lot of dieting and restricting, we can't really feel hunger and fullness except when they're at the most extreme levels. So like when you're so hangry that like you need to eat everything in sight or when you're so full that you literally feel sick and bloated and just like completely don't want to eat anything else. But there's a whole spectrum of hunger and fullness that's in the middle between those two feelings that a lot of people are missing. But we're taught to ignore those signals. You know, nobody ignores it when your body says, hey, I need to pee, right? We get up and we go to the bathroom, like if it's possible to do so. But we've been taught not to trust other signals that our body gives us, right? When our body says we're hungry, we might look at the clock and be like, well, it's not noon. I'm not supposed to be hungry right now. So I'm just going to ignore this, go back to what I'm doing and I'll eat later. And then we end up ravenous. We completely overeat. And we're like, why did I do this? Like, it's something's wrong with me. I have self-control issues. And that's, again, this culture that teaches us that we're the problem instead of the culture and all the different messages that it's given us. So coming back to that and then also really examining, do you like the way that you're eating? So many people are only eating the things that they're eating because they think that they should. And they're like, oh, well, I should eat this because it's healthy. And I shouldn't eat that because I've heard that it's unhealthy. And when we restrict in this way and we force ourselves to eat foods that we don't like, the eating experience, again, it's disconnected. It's not enjoyable. If we're only eating foods that we don't find satisfying, most people tend to really overeat because they are trying to satisfy what their body wants and they can't, right? If your body says, hey, I want cake and you eat rice cakes, that's not the same thing. And so then you might move from the rice cakes to like, okay, well, I'm still not satisfied. So like, maybe I'll have this protein bar. Still not the same thing. So eventually you make your way to the cake, probably way overeat the cake. And then you've also eaten all these other foods that you didn't even want. Whereas if you had just said, oh, my body wants cake, I guess I'm gonna have a slice of cake and enjoy that and be satisfied with that. Like you never would have had to go on that uncomfortable journey with these other foods. So Really coming back to that satisfaction piece and saying, you know, what foods do I even like? What foods do I want to be a part of what I'm eating? And people always fear. They're like, oh, well, if I do that, like I'll only eat ice cream. I'll only eat, you know, sweets because I, I can't I trust myself. And the reality is like, no, you won't. Just the same way that nobody is going to eat like, I don't know, boiled chicken and carrots every single day because you'll get so bored with it and you won't want it anymore. If you try to eat ice cream and cake every single day, how long do you think it's going to be before you're like, ugh, I really don't want any more ice cream and cake? The problem is no one ever gives themselves that opportunity because they tamp it down and they say, no, I can't do this. There's the sugar, it's addictive, it's going to kill me. And they don't allow themselves to habituate to these foods to realize that like these foods are just foods, right? They're not good. They're not bad. Um, food is food. And yes, they have different nutrient densities and whatever, but you can have a balance of all kinds of different foods just by listening to your body if you can learn to trust it. Mm. 
Why do you think people check out around food? Like I'm just thinking about like eating food in front of the TV or eating food on the run or in the car or, you know, because I feel like part of what you're saying is that you're just not like conscious of how your, Mm -hmm. your relationship is with food, you know, is why are we, I don't know. And I'm thinking partly of myself, like, why are we so resistant to, to like, I don't know. I I know when I cook, I feel the closest to my food, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't really like grocery shopping. I don't know if I really would call eating food. Like, I guess if it's, if it's a delicious meal, it's a pleasant experience, but it's not like, like what I, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's not like this like intimate thing, but cooking for me, you know, I feel that. So how do you develop that with eating and why do you think we're so averse to it? Some of the most common reasons that I've seen that people kind of check out around food are that one, a lot of people use food as a numbing, kind of similar to how some people would use alcohol or drugs or sex. Um, Food is very easily available. It can be really cheap depending on what you're getting. And so If you need to numb, if you don't want to deal with your feelings, food is one of the most accessible ways to do so. And it's also one of the most socially acceptable ways to do so, again, compared to sex or drugs. So I think that's one of the reasons that people tend to fall into food, especially because, again, when we're children and we do not have access to things like drugs and alcohol, food tends to be more accessible and it tends to be something, um, not for everybody, but it tends to be something that people can get and they can use that to numb out on their feelings. So a lot of times there's an emotional component. It's simply that they don't have other coping mechanisms. And so they're relying on food to get them through tough emotions, which, you know, can of course become problematic when it's the only coping mechanism that you have. But I'm certainly not saying that all emotional eating is bad. Emotions are of course going to be associated with food and it can be a great coping mechanism and great numbing tool. But if it's the only one you have to rely on, this is where you get into this problem where you're completely out of touch with yourself and you just don't feel great in your body when you're eating because you're not participating in the process. So that's one of the biggest reasons that I've seen. Another reason is that a lot of us are so busy and so overscheduled that eating is one of our only kind of rest times during the day. And so I have a lot of clients where, you know, on their lunch or at dinner time, because they're so busy the rest of the day, that's why they are watching TV or that's why they're playing on their phone because it's like their decompression time. And so they feel like they need to be eating, you know, if they're going to be eating, they're like, okay, well, I also need to be doing this other thing that I want to do because I need to decompress. I need to relax. And so it all kind of gets scheduled together and it's okay to have distractions while you're eating. I'm not saying that, you know, we all have to eat in perfect silence for the rest (laughs) of our lives during meals. Definitely not that. But what I found is that people at the beginning, when they're first learning to get in touch with their body's cues and learning how to eat more intuitively, is that the less distractions there are, and even just doing this for one meal a day, the easier it becomes to check in with yourself and feel what is going on in your body. As you develop that skill, it becomes so automatic that you could eat with all the distractions in the world and for the most part still be tuned into that. So it's something that you can develop and then kind of come back to if, you know, you really like having uh, a podcast on while you're eating or watching TV while you're eating. Like, I'm certainly not going to tell anybody like, no, you can't do that. Like, there is no one right way to do this, but it can help at the beginning to uh, take away some of those distractions and check in at least a little bit with yourself. That makes so much sense, especially what you said about resting, just how it all gets, you know, thrown together. Um, Mm -hmm. I never thought of that, that. So yeah, that's such a good, that's such a good point. Um, Okay. So you've given us great context around um, all of the many facets of yourself and the things that you're passionate about. I'd love to know if you have resources around how you live with ADHD and not just like how you breathe, but how you function. (laughs) Um, You know, like you, I've read that you're um, an organizational geek, which I would love to know your secrets around that, um, (laughs) working on it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, do you have any resources you can provide or just like ways of life that have, that have helped you just function better? 
Yeah. So it, the organizational piece is, uh, again, this is a coping mechanism that I developed as a child that I didn't know until adulthood was related to ADHD, where I tend to be, for the most part, uber organized about everything. Like my digital file organization is very in-depth, very intense, a lot of folders. Uh, and even in person as well, I love organizational stuff. Like the container store is my jam. <laughs> um, and it's because if I do not organize to the extreme, like everything goes into chaos. And this happens to me in certain spaces where things don't have a place to go. Uh, when I get really busy, things start to pile up. So it's something that I kind of have to keep on top of to not forget things. Like that was really what came, why that came about is because for people who have ADHD, it's very much like an out of sight, out of mind problem. And, and also we have the opposite problem as well, which is where if you see something too much, you don't, you forget that it's there. So like some people, they can put a sticky note on their computer as a reminder. And every day they're like, oh yeah, there's that reminder. A lot of times people with ADHD eventually that sticky note just kind of blends in with the background. And so you just forget that it's even there and it's no longer serving as a reminder. It's just not enough of a, a stimulus for the brain to actually accept it. So organizing has really helped me with that. Um, basically the best, the best organizing advice that I can give for people is that everything needs a place. Like that is the best way to get organized is to figure out where you want to put things and how you do best. Like some people need to be able to see things uh, to stay organized with them and other people need them out of the way, you know, hidden in a closet or hidden in a cabinet. So figuring that out. And then it's really just about finding the tools, whether that's buying things, you know, different kinds of organizing um, drawers, cabinets, whatever. I have all kinds of fancy stuff. Like I said, I love the <laughs> container store uh, or just, you know, making your own, creating your own systems, like something as simple as, as folders or uh, other options are totally available. But that's where people tend to get into trouble is if things don't have a space to go in is then everything ends up in a clutter because it's like, well, where am I supposed to put this? So creating the systems of like, all right, I want these things to go here. This room holds this stuff. That has always really helped me so that I don't forget where everything is. But in terms of just kind of navigating ADHD in general, it's really challenging. I will not sugarcoat that. Um, I have a therapist who's wonderful. I take medication. I was resistant to medication for years uh, just because my siblings did not have the best experiences with it. And I just was, you know, afraid um, because we have a lot of uh, stigma against taking medication in our society, particularly for mental health stuff. And I was like, oh, I should be able to do this on my own. And over time, working with different therapists and an ADHD coach, I realized that like, okay, I've put in a lot of different things into practice and I'm still struggling. So now it's time to try medication. I'm so glad that I did because it has helped me immensely to just be able to focus and get things done for my business and to not feel like I need to pass out every day at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not right for everybody, but some people find that the combination of medication and therapy are extremely helpful for them. And honestly, running my own business has been a helpful thing for ADHD because I'm not working for somebody else. I'm working for me. And while that has its ups and downs, you know, I don't have to worry about other people's deadlines that I'm potentially messing up or like upsetting an employer because I'm the one in charge. I know what the deadlines are. Um, and as long as I can stay organized and kind of keep control of, of what I want to be doing in my schedule, then there's less chance of me dropping the ball and I can have more control over what works for my brain and what doesn't. Obviously, not everybody can uh, drop their job and start a business, nor do I recommend that for everybody. <laughs> but it was very helpful for me to create an environment that worked with my brain uh, because trying to fit into, you know, the environment of a law office and, and many other work environments that I've had in the past, like just didn't work for me and was so much of a struggle that I found it much better to be able to work for myself and kind of create that. But biggest piece of advice I can give for anybody out there who has ADHD neurodiverse is 
the world is wants you to be more neurotypical and is going to try to tell you like that's the best way is to like pass for being neurotypical. But what you actually want to do is figure out what your tendencies are and learn to work with those tendencies because you are going to be so miserable if you try to you know, fit yourself into something that you can't. Like I am a major procrastinator. I always have been. And that's super stressful for me uh, to do that and to, you know, come to the end of something and then stay up all night working on it to get it out. But I also know that that's the way that my brain works. Anytime I've tried to do it differently, it has not functioned for me. So I have figured out parameters that work with my natural tendency so that I can actually you know, keep that, keep what works for me while also not being as stressed about it and, um, you know, having other things, like really allowing my workflow to know that sometimes I'm going to be really busy. And then that means that other times I can just like take time off and rest and figure that out. So look at what you naturally want to do. Learn about all the different symptoms of ADHD because it's mind blowing, truly all the different parts of your life that it affects. Because once you know them, then you can work with those and you can do something with them. I have a million questions, but I'm going to have to refrain from asking all of them. Um, yeah, there's just there's so much there, and this is so helpful. I I know I know it is for me, so um, it's got to be for for other people. I just think that a lot of what you've just said there can be applied to um, a lot of different aspects of life and mental health. So yeah, um, that's that's really awesome. And yeah, you could start a podcast just around what you just said. <laughs> um, and we would all be grateful for it. <laughs> I'd love to just know, cause you kind of touched on it. How did you transition from being a lawyer to, um, being an entrepreneur and, and starting a podcast? I, I'm sure there's, you know, some relationship there, but at least on paper, they're pretty different, uh, journeys, <laughs> you know? So how did you do that? What did that journey look like? Yes, there are very different worlds for sure. Um, you know, people always ask me if I regret going to law school and I always say no because I had a great experience in law school and it challenged me and it taught me so many life skills that I am using as an entrepreneur. Like I'm so happy that I have that education and background because it has served me so well. But unfortunately, the actual practice of law, I did not find it fulfilling. I did not feel like I could be my most authentic self in that space. You know, the law is still very much a space that's dominated by older white men, much like Congress. And it's not super fun if you don't fit into that. And I just did not have a great experience there and realized that like, I didn't envision a future, even if I switched firms, even if I switched practice groups or whatever, where I would wake up every day being excited to go to work. You know, I was waking up every day absolutely dreading going to work. And then I was like, okay, it's time for a new career path. And that was terrifying because I had spent all this time and money and effort to become a lawyer. Like that is not an easy uh, career path to pursue. And I was like, God, what are people going to think? <laughs> what are my parents going to think? And it was very scary to move away from that. But again, this is that turning inward. For me, there was something inside of me that was saying, you will not be fulfilled here. And why waste any more time hoping that maybe something will change when like deep down, you know, it's not going to change. And so that kind of began the process of like, all right, well, what do I want to do with my life? And what is this going to look like? And I ran through a lot of different ideas, read some books eventually before being like, okay, you know, personal training, nutrition, like that sounds like something I could do. I had always been the kind of fitness person amongst my friends. And I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed kind of the teaching aspect of that where I would be educating others. And so that was my initial thought process was like, all right, I'll, you know, get certified as a personal trainer, start my own business and kind of see where things go. And at that time, I would not have guessed the direction that things have gone. At that time, I had never heard of health at every size. I'd never heard of fat liberation. Uh, I didn't know about so much of the social justice oriented aspects that 
are now the complete value system and base for my business. And in discovering those things over time and getting connected to the right people, that's where I really found like, oh, this is my niche here is helping people kind of redefine their health for themselves and learn to care and respect the bodies that they're in right now without having to change them to feel like they're worthy. And so that's what, you know, my business ended up becoming. And so in some ways it's like I've had multiple businesses over the course of the last four years because it didn't start out as what it is now. Um, so some people have been with me from the beginning and I've been on quite a journey as I've grown and developed myself. But as I've come to this work and I've gotten more comfortable with it, that's when I started the podcast because I realized that these are not the mainstream conversations that people are having about health and well-being. You know, I wanted to talk to people, especially people with lived experience, about, you know, what is health really? How does diet culture affect people? Like, what does it mean to have a better relationship with food and your body? And what are all the things that affect health that nobody talks about, right? Like, being housed, mental health, our spiritual health, our economic health, all these different aspects. And the podcast just seemed like the best avenue to do that because I know, you know, my own personal experiences, but I wanted to talk to people who are having different experiences than me, doing different work than me. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of taking up space where I felt like you know, I can create this platform where people whose voices really need to be heard have a place to put that out into the world. You know, I can be a part of that. This is that bridging aspect where it's like, I'm hosting, I'm, you know, outlining, creating the questions, setting that up, facilitating the conversations. But what I'm really doing is giving other people a space to shine and show people what is out in the world. And so honestly, the last year of podcasting has been one of the best experiences of my life. I absolutely love it. I've made some very dear friends from people that I just asked to have on for interviews. And then we've continued our relationship after that. You know, I've found a lot of clients from uh, different people that I've interviewed and just from people listening to the podcast, like the reach that I've been able to have with this really important messaging and having a podcast is even more vast than, you know, what I've been able to have on a platform like Instagram. And it has this dual purpose of really letting some amazing voices be heard. Because some of the people on my podcast, you know, these people with really big followings, some of these people have no followings, but their messages still need to be heard. They still need to be out in the world. So I really love doing that. Uh, and it just fit in well with the other work that I was doing with my clients to also have these larger, more global conversations. Yes, that's so important. What would you say, and you can take a minute, are your most recommended or most referred to books and or podcasts? So for books, I definitely recommend intuitive eating. Um, make sure you got the fourth edition. That's the one that just came out. It's the most updated and is the most uh, inclusive edition of the book. So I think that's a great place if you are struggling with your relationship with food, you understand that diet culture is not so great and you want to move away from it, but you don't know how, like that's a wonderful place to start is the intuitive eating book to start beginning to understand that there is another way of eating and being. I think um, Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff is a wonderful book for people who are really struggling with negative self-talk and with learning how to be kind to themselves. Like there's some amazing tools there. And then for the body piece, I love, love, love The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. That is just a beautiful book um, that talks about how we can, you know, honor and respect these bodies that we call home. So that is what I would say for books. Um, it's funny about podcasts because I'm a podcast host, but I don't listen to very many podcasts. <laughs> uh, you know, the one that got me started in kind of the work that I'm doing is Christy Harrison's Food Psych podcast, which is kind of the most well-known intuitive eating podcast that is out there. So again, a great place to start if you're just trying to learn about diet culture and intuitive eating um, really around like season three, I would say it's in its seventh season now, uh, because at the beginning, that's wasn't what the podcast was focused on. 
Uh, honestly, beyond that, the only podcast that I really listen to um, with some frequency is uh, Amy Porterfield's marketing mm-hmm. podcast, Online Marketing Made Easy, um, when there are specific topics that I think will be helpful for my business. And then people will like send me individual episodes of other podcasts, which I'm always happy to listen to, especially if it's someone that uh, I'm interested in learning about. But yeah, I'm, I love audiobooks. So that's where I do a lot of my listening is to listen to audiobooks. Yes. Yeah, me too. I'm actually pretty auditory. So I'm with you there. And typically I throw in um, films and, and Instagram handles because I believe like we're all multisensory. So I'm kind of surprised that I left those out, but, <laughs> but that's really helpful. Um, okay. To wrap up, last question. If you could speak to yourself a decade ago, what would you tell that person? It could be anything from any angle. Is there, is there something that comes to mind that, that you would say to yourself 10 years ago? So a decade ago, I was 20 and very a few months out from turning 21. And I also would have been wrapping up college. That would have been in my final semester of college because I graduated in December. So, oh, so it's just such a young and innocent version of Shore at 20. <laughs> Um, you know, I think what I would say to myself then is that there's a lot of hard things ahead of you, but all of those things will make you who you are and will lead you to be your most authentic self. So stay the course, even when it sucks, feel your feelings and just keep putting one foot in front of the other and see where it takes you. Shore Davidi offers one-on-one coaching and personal consultation calls for both personal and business strategy. She's a group coaching program called The Snack Pack that opens up a few times a year. You can get on the waitlist for the program on her website, shoreedavity.com and that's s-h-o-h-r-e-h-d-a-v-o-o-d-i you can follow shore at shore davity on instagram and listen to her podcast wherever you get your podcasts it's called redefining health and wellness Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at Woke Beauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at WokeBeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Oh.